second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make their paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waists, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All is not calm. This was the catchy tagline, the play on our favorite, one of our favorite Christmas hymns, Silent Night. That was on the photo Christmas card for the Cooper Seawright family in December of 2020. After nearly 11 months of pandemic lockdown, of no school and then online school, of recording worship in the guest room while dance class happened in the playroom, After 11 months of grocery shopping at 8 a.m., when only a certain number of folks were let in at a time, when nothing felt predictable or what we had known before, surely this was the best sentiment to get just the right chuckle from the folks that received it because it felt honest to the year that we had had. And that's what I was going for, at least, in sending it. And it worked. I received some good compliments on the creativity, the truth with a capital T that the statement represented, alongside, of course, the appropriately chaotic picture of our family. (laughs) Though, to be honest, the real truth of it was that while, yes, our routines had been upturned and No, things were not calm, but when are they ever? Yes, our daily life looked different, and our general sense of knowing what to expect had been shattered. But our discomfort was rather comfortable in the end. We had the ability to shift our schedules to meet the demands of online school. We had resources enough to keep us well-fed and entertained and equipped. We could stay cloistered in our home and take long walks in our wooded neighborhood when we got a little claustrophobic or just needed some space. We had kids who were adept enough at school that while it wasn't their favorite, 
they could adapt to the different learning environment. We had our health, and for the most part, the people we loved did as well. The truth was that while not necessarily calm, in comparison to others, we were relatively comfortable in our discomfort. This state of comfortable discomfort is one with which I imagine many of us are familiar. The times when we have the ability to choose whether or not, how deeply or not we engage the circumstances around us. Our hearts are pulled, they are broken, our consciousness is raised by what we hear and what we see, but we don't quite know what else to do or if there is really anything else that can be done or if what could be done we're really willing to do. This is distinct, of course, from the times when we are right in the midst of it. A loved one is hospitalized, an addiction spirals, a safety net falters. There is no choice in these instances but to be in it, to get through it, to pray, to get angry, to weep, to ask for help. It feels like an ever-indelicate imbalance. To live fully in this world as those who are full of compassion, who seek to live faithfully, who desire justice, and who pursue peace, all the while trying to assure a stable present, uh, present and a thriving future for ourselves and those we love. Very few, myself included, choose the kind of discomfort it takes to don camel's hair and to eat locusts and to talk up their own inadequacies, all for the sake of making the way clear for what is next. For that's what it can feel like it might take to really mean it. Because it's these, like, the discomforted John the baptizer, whom we Christians come to each and every year on this second Sunday of Advent, who come to mind as those who have gone all in. And interestingly enough, his story is paired often on this same second Sunday with proclamations of comfort from God to the exiled Judeans, assuring them that after generations of life under Babylonian occupation, their term is paid. In the wilderness of displacement, God is cutting a fast way out. So we get some mixed messages, I think. Comfort and discomfort rum up against one another. And of course we want the comfort. Or at least that state of comfortable discomfort of engaging John once or twice a year and choosing to see him as a bit, how would my daughter say it, as a bit extra? <laughs> that is, according to the slang definition, I could find online too extreme, not suitable, making too much effort, demanding too much attention. The assurances of Isaiah are much more inviting. A prophet who proclaims hope. A God who gently pulls a suffering people to herself. 
The trouble is, to fully understand the comfort of Isaiah 40 is to also understand the discomfort of chapters 1 through 39. For the prophet's earlier words to this same people are of judgment against their greed, their impatience, their protection of privilege, their political manipulations. In the preceding part of Judah's story, it was precisely the comfort-seeking habits of the people that landed them in exile. Melissa Bill serves as a college chaplain, and she writes about this intersection of comfort and discomfort in the context of the students she and her colleagues love and nurture and seek to serve. On the one hand, she writes of the resiliency of these students, having come through high school during the COVID pandemic, and also in a time of greater awareness of and openness towards mental and physical and emotional well-being. They've matured in a time of justice movements that have grown in them healthy boundaries and strong moral opinions. Sitting where we do this morning, looking out at you, we are well aware of this. Some are right in the midst of it. As headlines carry news as we sit on campuses where students are holding teach-ins and there are faculty walkouts and we hear of congressional hearings and leadership resignations. So it is with tenderness that we hold Bill's comments because she is grateful for this resiliency. But she points out also that she has noticed sometimes what she calls the shadow side of this self-awareness. When boundaries can become dividing walls, when advocacy can turn to judgment, when self-care can turn to disengagement, when emotional self-protection can lead to defensiveness, much of this resulting in the tendency that she's noticed on her campus over time for some to reject or even hold disgust for the experience of discomfort. So here's where I say it is easy for many of us to pile on to these students. It's a habit, I think, whether we like it or not, from one generation to the next. Our first instinct sometimes, although not always, is to dismiss the naivete, just as our parents may have done for us. Though I wonder if, in fact, they have done just a really good job of learning from us. Why choose discomfort? when the easiest path is to shield ourselves, to write off the neighbor with a lawn sign that we don't like, to drive a little out of the way to avoid certain neighborhoods, to insist that our experience be privileged, to refuse ideas that challenge us, 
to distill complexity into hard moral simplicities. And yet we all, we all know that this is no way to live together. We mourn the loss of civility and worry over long-term impacts. We toggle back and forth between self-righteousness and despair, so much so that it can keep us up at night. This is not a mark of a thriving society, nor is it the way we want to realize any sort of future beyond chaos and isolation and hopelessness. For her part on campus, Bill and her colleagues strategize about how to normalize the experience of discomfort, working to equip well those students that she loves with the idea that sometimes discomfort is an important part of personal growth. So that when they, when we move into what life has next, they will be more open to the discomfort that will come whether or not it is invited. Because as I noted earlier on, it comes. All is not calm. There is a lot that breaks our hearts and pulls on our collective unconsciousness, our conscious, a lot that challenges our sense of stability and place. The wilderness. The wilderness is a place we all know or will come to know in life. And in fact, for those of us looking to celebrate the incarnation of God right in our midst, it's a place to which we're called. Because God knows the wilderness quite well. John the baptizer was absolutely extra. I'm pretty sure it's in the job description of a prophet. And so to tone him down, to pat him on the head and send him off into Advent 2024 is to miss the opportunity he invites of all of us. To accept some discomfort for the sake of tending hope. To normalize it even as necessary in order to make way for what can be. Because that is what John is doing here for us. He is offering the people the opportunity to be a part of the new thing that God is doing and equipping them for the upending this will be to their tidy expectations and closely held comforts. John is picking up from the likes of Isaiah and pulling the thread through. And because these words of the prophets before him ring in their ears, the people respond. This is what good news, that gospel of love and forgiveness, inspires when we let it begin to work on us. In fact, in this story, the people take the initiative to go. John stands on the outside, and they come to him. Coming from the whole Judean countryside, says Mark. These same people who generations ago realized the promise that God would indeed show up. They know in their bones and in the stories of their ancestors that when God makes a promise, that promise is kept. They did a really good job of learning from those who came before them. And so they go from the comfort of their certainties and their routines and their suburban cul-de-sacs. Perhaps some stood on the shorelines or back away from the crowd, 
those who weren't quite ready to go into the waters, those who wanted to remain in the middle, some form of comfortable discomfort that pressed them from their homes but held them back from the full change into which they were invited. But others went in. They felt the waters come up over their heads and they were moved to be honest about the ways they could do better by one another. They felt the burden of all that guilt and anxiety roll off with relief and they prepared their hearts for what or for who was coming next. The one John was pointing to all along, the one who somehow, but only God knew how, would be more powerful. I know that we need words of comfort. I know this because so much is uncomfortable for us these days. So much weighs upon us. Our relationships, our choices, our moral reckonings within ourselves Words of comfort can be beacons of hope because comfort can be collaborative. It can be something that we do and share with one another. It becomes hope that we have the capacity for change, hope that hospitals will be places of healing and safety rather than battlegrounds, hope that music festivals will be places of joy and delight rather than targets, hope that neighborhoods will be places of flourishing rather than territory to be disputed. But all of this being said, words of comfort are distinct from being comfortable. And all of this is the challenge that we face in this Advent and into a new year. It's the challenge of Christian life, really, to which we circle back again and again. What discomfort? Are we willing to accept beyond the well-managed, comfortable discomfort? What baptism of repentance will we walk willingly towards in order to make the real change necessary to prepare the way for what God is doing next? Because we can stake our faith on it. God has come. God is come. God will come again. Jesus, the incarnate one, indeed came with power and with tenderness that changed the world. Our challenge and our hope, friends. So the prophet calls us. Will we go?